worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you're my God. All together lovely. All together worthy. All together wonderful to me. Thou never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. Here I am to worship, here I am to bow down, here I am to say exciting. Everybody awake? sing your praises. I'm so glad you're in my life. I'm so glad you came to save us. You came from heaven to earth to show the way from the earth to the cross. My debt to pay from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky, Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I lift your name on high. I love to sing your praises in my life to save all. cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky, Lord, I lift your name on high. You came from heaven 
to earth to show the way from the earth to the cross my debt to pay from the cross to the grave from the grave to the sky lord i lift your name on high it's so great Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless faith, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again, and as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me, the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of
if you're dismissed to class, you get ready to pray for the study of God's Word. Let's bow. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, God, for this morning. We thank you for Matt, Lord. We thank you for all the work that you've done through him this week, Lord, to prepare the message that you have for us to hear, Lord. I pray, God, that, that you would open our hearts and minds to hear what it is that you have to say. And Lord, I pray for your spirit to be on Matt, that you would preach to him, Lord, the words that you want him to say. That you would take all of those things, Lord, and just give encouragement strength to preach your word of truth, with conviction, and with hope. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Are you familiar with gold standard products? Right, the idea of something being gold standard, being kind of the quintessential, uh, the, the perfect, the, the thing that everything else, every other product in that category is compared to, whether that's a food that's in taste or um, a product in color or quality. Um, have you ever thought about the idea, and I'm pretty sure you haven't, about the idea of a gold standard believer? Same kind of idea, right? A gold standard believer would be that one to which everything else, everyone else is kind of compared to. And as Christians, it, it, it actually gets pretty easy sometimes, and maybe we don't think about it this way, but to kind of elevate certain people into what we might think of as the gold standard of what it means to be a, a believer. Now, we, we might think and we might know very well that nobody across the board is that way, but, but what we might think is, hey, man, this person is like the gold standard believer in terms of their worship, right? And we see them, and they've got their arms up, and they're like just in it, and they're loud, and they just, they, when worship happens, they're just they're going. Or maybe it's the, the gold standard faith sharer. Right, You know that when you are with them in public, at some point they are going to share the gospel with someone. Or maybe it's the gold standard uh, greeter, right? that person at church that just welcomes everyone. We might think this way a little bit. For some of us, uh, the gold standard of faith or of belief might have been a grandparent or a parent, might have been or be a friend might have been a pastor that we once had. For some of you, it might be me, though I'm just going to encourage you that you need to find a higher standard. Because the reality is that I look at others and see a higher standard. I see a gold standard that, that I want to aspire to. And the reality is that none of us can ever live up to what it would be to be a gold standard in belief. But I do suspect that every one of us has someone in mind that we can think of that we would hold to that kind of higher standard. And maybe that person has inspired us and led us and loved us. And when we think about being a Christian, we kind of think about being kind of like them. Those who seem to have a higher standard in their faith, who have gone higher, farther, or deeper in their faith than we have. For me, I think about people who have inspired me to go deeper in worship, to, to worship him more passionately or to give up more and more of my life. People who have led me to give more and more generously. People who are bolder in sharing the gospel, gentler in dealing with the sin in others and passionate, more passionate than I am about putting their own sin to death 
and about raising to life the new qualities that we're supposed to have as spiritual people who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. In each of these people, we might think that all I need to do is copy them and I will make it. If I could be more like them, I could make it. The trouble is, is that this is incredibly misguided and done incredibly for the loss in vain. Friends, we cannot hope to attain to a faith like theirs, those spiritual giants in front of us, the gold standard of faith, by copying them. We can only find it in any way by knowing the God that they know. Right? If we want to worship more or deeper, if we want to give more, we can't just look at another believer and think, man, if I, I could just be like them, I will, I will find it. No, we have to be a people who know God like they know God. And I would say know God more than them as well, because they're different than we are. We cannot, in faith, fake it till we make it. That is not how the Christian faith works. The Christian faith works by knowing God personally, by being led by God into the new life that he has called us to be. So friends, I just want you to know that if you have one of those people, one of those spiritual giants, giants of the faith, one of those gold standard believers in you want to be like them, then there's only one way, and it is not to imitate them. It is to know God the way that they know God. How do we do that? Well, the first way is through Scripture, and the second way is actually through experiencing Scripture with those people. It's one of the reasons why church is so important, is that just being around other believers means that we begin to experience God with them in the ways that they do. And that means that if you are not as strong of a worshiper, just being in church with some people who are encourages you and builds you up and lifts you up. In the same way, those being around those who might share their faith more freely gives us that, that experience of God where we might have the faith to do the same. Today's passage, what we're going to see is, is that both um, from, the, from God, as, as in Scripture, as well as in and through the life of a believer, we are going to be able to see how someone, who I would say is actually kind of a gold standard in Scripture, um, how they have experienced God, that we too might be able to. We're in Psalm 63 today, and I'm going to invite you to turn there. This is the psalm of David, and I don't know if you know much about David, but in a lot of ways, David is kind of that gold standard of believer. Now, that should be encouraging to us, because David was a miserable sinner as well, and for you and I, who also are miserable sinners, we can attain and hope to attain to a level to which he knew, but as New Testament believers, I can also tell you, we should be trying to attain far beyond what David was. And we'll look at that as well. But here's Psalm 63. This is a Psalm of David when he's in the wilderness of Judah. Now what that should just tell us, this is the first words of this Psalm, is that David is not at home, he's not in his city, and he's probably fleeing for his life yet again. 
The fact that he's in Judah in the wilderness means this is probably during the time when his own son Absalom rebelled against him, started a coup, and was trying to kill him. And in, and in, in fear, he runs out of the city with everybody who will follow him. And they're out in the wilderness. And, and just imagine what it must be like to be someone whose own family has decided he's not worth being around, he's not worth keeping around, and, and they want to get rid of him. Okay? But I want us to hear the hope in this passage, because what we're not going to hear in this passage is anything else. And just think about that. To be in one of the worst spots that you could imagine being, having your family coming after you, and all you can be is hopeful and positive. How many of us would accomplish that if that happened to us today? Not me. I know that by experience. And so let us take a look at what is going on in David's life, that we might know the God that he knows the way he knows that God. Here's what he says. He says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is a gold standard of prayer for when you're in hard, troubled times. His eyes remain on God as our eyes should as well. What I want us to do today is simply compare our prayers and our worship to David's and ask the question whether or not we know God the way that David knows God. Now normally, and if you've been a part of Calvary for any amount of time, you know that I really discourage the comparing of our faith to the faith and lives of anybody else. I say that all the time, right? Our eyes, our eyes need to not be on each other, saying, thinking I'm farther along or maybe I'm not as far as those who are around me. But in this case, we are given a gold standard, and that gold standard comes to us through the Holy Spirit in Scripture. And so I actually want us to compare our prayers and our faith and our understanding of God to David's here so that we might honestly ask, do I know this God? And my prayer for every one of you, and this includes myself as I came through the study this week and as I got into this passage, the same question that I'm asking you all, I've asked myself at least four dozen times this week. Do I know God the way David knows God? And I'll just tell you, the answer to that is no. Now there's a few ways, yes, but... But we're all a work in progress, and my prayer is that by the end of today, um, we would either know that we are all drastically falling short, and we would know God better 
and turn to him in repentance of, of seeing him smaller and less clearly than we should because he's told us about who he is, or that we might come out on the other side encouraged because we could say, man, I, I do know God the way David knows God here. That we might be encouraged by looking at that and, and thinking, man, God is at work in my life right now. And I see him, and I see him clearly. That's my hope and my prayer, that we would either come into this discouraged, ready to repent and believe, or that we would be encouraged, ready to sing and be joyful, because God is at work. Most of us will probably experience both of those today. So we look at this. We are going to look at a characteristic of God, something about who God is, and we're going to look at, at how David responds to that. And the question for us in every one of those is whether or not that's our response or a response like it is ours. And so in this, we're going to dive right in, and we're going to start with verse 1 and 2. And we are going to see that David is desperate in his need for God. Now, the characteristic of God here, if you're taking notes, you should write this down, is that God is what we need most. Okay? God is what we need most. He is what we need. And for some of us, maybe all of us, we fill our lives with all kinds of things that aren't God, thinking that those are what we need most, when the reality is that all of those things are at best secondary and most of them are a distant way down the road. We fill our lives with, with wants and deepest needs, but none of them are what we need most. Some of us, it's to be liked, loved, and cared for. For some of us, we most need to be respected, or we think we need to be respectable. We need to be well thought of. For some of us, it is to be rich or at least financially comfortable. For some of us, it is to have a really big family. For some of us, it is to have a ton of time to ourselves and nobody else. We think if I just had X or if X or Y was different in my life, then I would be well off, I would be doing good, I would be okay. There are all kinds of things that we think, if we have it, then I will have everything that I need and everything that I want. What strikes me here is that David has literally experienced every single one of the things you and I could ever want. Have you ever thought about that? David, who has been king, right? Who is one of the richest men in the world. He has wives and concubines. He's got all the relationships any of us could ever hope to have. He's got friends who will die for him. He has a castle. I want a castle. Right? I mean, name something in your life that you think that you want or need and look at David and ask the question, has David had it? The answer is yes. He's got kids coming out of his ears. Right? He's got family. He's got friends. He's got community. He has an amazing relationship with God. David is literally a man who has experienced every single thing any one of us could ever want, hope, or desire. And now he's on the road, and what does he want most? 
He doesn't want a bed, his castle, his riches, his friends, rich food. He doesn't want any of that stuff. What does he want? He wants God, right? He knows in that moment, having every one of his needs, wants, and desires ever satisfied, that the one thing that he needs most, that he is desperate for, is God. Nothing else will do. This is what he thirsts for. Look at this. I'm supposed to read this earlier. I, I didn't read this again. <laughs> he says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I mean, we can just imagine David in the wilderness, not near a stream, getting really thirsty, and he's still saying, Lord, what I need most is not a drink of water. What I need most is you. He says, this is what my soul thirsts for. My flesh faints for you. He is weak, but not in the lack of food, but in the lack of God. It's a great description of so many of us. It's a really great description of any of us who will only feed on the, the feast of the Word of God for the next 35 minutes today and not look at it again the next week. You are someone, if that is you, who is starving the rest of the week. You can live eating one meal a week. You cannot thrive eating one meal a week. We need God. Do you yearn for God the way that David does? Do you recognize in your bones, in your soul, in the depths of your mind, that what you need most is not a better car, or a little bit more money, or a few more friends, or whatever else you might insert in that, that what you need most is God? Because David knew this. Because David had experienced God in such a way that he knew God was the only satisfaction for his soul. Now it's interesting, in verse 2, he really lands this. He doesn't leave it generic. All right, what he's thirsting for the most, we're going to see, is God's power and his glory. Here's what he says in verse 2. He says, so I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, right? So he's yearning for God, and the thing about God that satisfies that yearning is what? It's God's power and his glory. Now we'll add to that in just a minute his, excuse me, his steadfast love. But it starts with his power and his glory. Why would a man who's who's fleeing his own family, running away for his life, so crave God's power and glory? Because it's God's power and glory that's going to fix it. Right? It's God's power. He is immeasurably powerful. He is able to help. He is able and willing. And it is his glory, right? God's glory is the greatest motivation in Scripture. We are saved because of his glory. Equally so, people go to hell because of God's glory, right? The one shows the, the glory of his love, the other shows the glory of his justice. 
You read scripture and you see glory and power. You see the might here. And you realize that what David is craving right now is God's power and his glory. Man, when you're in a hard time, what do you crave the most? What do you crave the most? What will satisfy your deepest needs? The second thing that we see in David is that he is absolutely compelled to worship. He is compelled to worship. Why? Because of the characteristic of God's steadfast love. So if you're taking notes, David is compelled to worship because of God's steadfast love. Here's what we see in verse 3 and 4. This flows out of his power and his glory. Remember that. These are connected. He says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Friends, because of the God that David knows, he is compelled to worship. I love just the word that starts here in verse 3, because, right? Because of God's steadfast love, David says, I will worship. I'm not just going to worship once, though. He says, I'm going to worship my entire life. The word here for steadfast love is the Hebrew word hesed, which is a powerful word. It describes God's love most of the time. You see it all over the place, particularly in the Old Testament, but it extends into the New Testament as well. In the New Testament, it actually becomes an attribute of Christian love, but only because it flows out of God's hesed love for us. The word here has, has a connotation of loyalty. It has the connotation of enduring. It is a devoted love. It is an ungiving up love. Chesed. Steadfast love of God. Turn to Psalm 136. You're going to see the volume and the depth of his steadfast love here. We're not going to read this whole thing. But you're going to get an idea here, I hope, of, of how big God's steadfast love is. So look at Psalm 136, and if you're looking at your Bible and you see that, you're going to see the, a pattern here. The entire psalm has a line, and then what does it say? For his steadfast love endures forever. Okay? The entire psalm is built with a declaration of who God is, followed by, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let me read just a few lines of this, starting in verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love comes out of his goodness. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love is unique to only him. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 4. To him who alone does great wonders... Right? The miracles, the power of God that flows into the lives that we get to see and experience. Why? Because of his steadfast love enduring forever. Verse 5, to him who by understanding made the heavens for his steadfast love endures forever. It was God's steadfast love for us and for creation and for the Trinity that he would create everything. And this flows through the next bunch of verses. Right, this, this next stanza is all about his creation. His creation flows out of his steadfast love. Verse 10, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever. Friends, it's his steadfast love 
that causes God to rescue his people from Egypt out of slavery. It is his steadfast love for them that causes the death of those in justice. Right? His steadfast love endures forever. Verse 11, he brought Israel out from among them for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm for his steadfast love endures forever. Right? That whole stanza continues through the Exodus. Verse 17, to him who struck down great kings for his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 18, and killed mighty kings for his steadfast love endures forever. Right? God's steadfast love for his people causes him to act the way he has acted. It is his faithfulness to his people. Some of those hard questions that we deal with as Christians, well, what about when God does this and God does that? People say that doesn't look like a very loving God. Psalm 136's answer to us is that that is the very actions of a very loving God. His head, right? His steadfast love. His steadfast love is particular. It is aimed at his people And it is always aimed at his people, those to whom he is loyal to. David says, it is his steadfast love that compels me to worship. Church, are you compelled to worship? Are you compelled to worship? Like, the opportunity arises to worship and your mouth just opens and utterances just come out. Do you crave Sunday morning so that you can be in the house of God with the people of God singing praises? I mean, I'm kind of preaching to the choir here, but maybe there's someone else who might listen to this who says, you know what, I don't crave that. I need to crave that, and that's why I'm not there on Sunday morning. When you're in the car and a song comes on, or you're at home alone and in the shower, and you think of the the love of God and his steadfastness towards us, does it just make you start singing? Going back to Psalm 63, where we started, can you utter his words here? So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. All right, I'm going to pick on a few people here. Did you know in Scripture we are commanded to lift our hands in worship? Some of you are all like, no. (laughs) Right? Some of us, I'm just going to tell you, some of us need to raise our hands up. David basically saying, look, I am compelled by your steadfast love to throw my hands in the air, or maybe at least to right here. Okay? If we are compelled to worship, then i got to tell you, there's a few things we should be aware of. Number one, we're not going to be afraid of the people around you thinking we're weird because we're doing something in worship that they're not doing. Scott! It's a great example of the next thing I'm going to say. The guy can't sing his way out of a paper bag. But if you sit near him, you will hear him loudly. Why? Because he is a man that we all know can't help 
But praise the Lord when he thinks about the steadfast love. He also can't help but to sob. In church, that's the next thing. Some of us need to be a little less uncomfortable with sobbing in church. Some of us, when we read scripture, when we're praying, when a a song comes on, or when you feel the Holy Spirit move you during the message, you need to realize that the tears that want to fall out of your eyes are supposed to. Because you are compelled by the steadfast love of the Lord to worship. This last week, Zane and I were with a guy. Zane asked him, Hey man, you got a pretty sweet truck. It wasn't even a question, it was a statement, right? But like, tell me about your truck. It was like 45 minutes later we finally got to walk away from that conversation. A couple days later, a guy was at my house. And I made a comment about his truck. It was half an hour again before I was able to go do something else. Why? Because that man loves his truck so much that he in a week is willing to talk for an hour and 15 minutes to people about how awesome it is and about every little detail and how and every time he Zane and I thought this guy was going to be done talking about his truck he would remember something else he loved about his truck this guy could not stop opening his mouth about how awesome his truck was and I will tell you his truck was awesome i mean it's got features that i could just dream about It's like, man, that would be so cool. It also costs like 50,000 more than the truck that I have. I can't afford that. Can I ask you a question? Are you compelled to open your mouth in praise and conversation about who God is? How many of us, if somebody said, hey, can you tell me about your God, would day an hour and 15 minutes later? How many of us could hold that up for an hour and 15 minutes? How many of us are willing to? How many of us are so compelled by the love of God that when we get that opportunity, that opening, when somebody says something to us and they ask about church or God or what we did this weekend or whatever else, that we just take the opportunity and steamroll them for an hour and 15 minutes and how awesome God is. David can't help but open his mouth and praise. Church, Do we experience God in that way? Do we experience his steadfast love in such a way that we can't help but overflow, overwhelm people with a description of who he is? Because i got to tell you, as awesome as that truck was, God, way better. And every one of us knows that. Most of us can talk about how awesome a cheeseburger is at a new restaurant for longer than we talk to our neighbors about Jesus. Most of us can talk about the new technology we got, the new phone or that video or that TV show that we watched last week for longer than we are capable of talking about God. Why? Because we have completely missed what David has in confidence, and that is how awesome God's steadfast love is. How awesome his power is, his might is, how glorious God is. Are you compelled to worship? church in song in word in deed in life are you compelled to worship all right the third thing we see in verses five through six is that david is satisfied in god that david is fully satisfied in god the characteristic here is because of the riches of his depth 
the riches of his depth. Look at me with verse 5 and 6. Here's what David says. He says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Okay? My soul be satisfied with you with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Now, just a quick reminder. These are all the very things David doesn't have access to right now. I mean, I imagine he's sitting out in a cave somewhere or under the stars somewhere, and he's thinking, you know what I really want right now? A steak. Right? And he's thinking, you know what? I'm going to really want in about an hour when I get ready for bed to go to sleep. I'm going to really wish I had my kingly bed. Comfortable, right? I'm going to really wish I had all that. But what does he do? He takes all of that want, all of that. He's picturing that in his mind, and he says, you know what? This isn't about what I don't have. It's about what I do have, and that's God. And he says, my soul be satisfied with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. There's just two, in, two images here of depth, of how deep knowing God can be like eating rich, delicious food. I mean, it just take a minute and picture your favorite, absolutely favorite food. Even you who aren't foodies, right, who for food is, is not something you particularly care about. There is that treat, there is that thing that you love. There is that thing that, 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 man, if you could just eat this every day, you probably would, even though you know it would make you sick. Maybe it's cake. Maybe it's some food from some special place. I don't know what it is. The second thing that we see here is, is that he is one who can be meditated on day and night. He is one who can be meditated on day and night. Verse 8, he says, When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Some of us have real, a lot of trouble with sleep. I know a bunch of us do because a number of you have talked to me about it. Um, I do too at various times. Just trouble sleeping. And I'll tell you, one of the struggles that I have in sleeping is that I lay in bed frustrated because I know I've got to wake up in the morning and I'm going to be tired. And so I stew and I get frustrated and sometimes I get angry because I say, Lord, you know I've got to be up for church in the morning. Why is it three in the morning and I still have not fallen asleep? Anybody share that? Well, what if God has given you that sleeplessness as a gift? That even though you know you're going to wake up hard in the morning, you are meant to be satisfied not in a good night's sleep, but in him and him alone. I'll just tell you, last night was one of those nights for me. It's not a surprise because I had spent the whole day and the whole week working on this, thinking about what it meant to really, in my bed at night and in the watches of the night, to be meditating on him. You know what I chose to do instead of fretting and getting upset and frustrated and all the anxious and all the things that I usually do? I said, Lord, help me to just see you tonight. And I'll tell you, I didn't sleep much at all last night, and I woke up like, man, God is good. Now, I don't know if that'll be the same posture I have tonight when I don't sleep again. Right, I'm broken and I'm human just like the rest of us. But some of us, we fight our sleeplessness when what we should be doing is turning to the Lord. 
and spending the watches of the night. You know, David's sleeping out in a field with his head on a rock. He's not sleeping a wink, but what's he doing? He is focusing his heart, his mind, his life on God and on who God is. And he says, look, I may not have the rich food I want. I may not have the sleep that I so desperately crave right now. But what I do have is the depths of the riches of the Lord. If God were to somehow take from every one of us sleep for the rest of our lives, and we could somehow be healthy in that, we could spend every waking moment and every moment we should be sleeping, studying God and meditating on who he is, and still in the course of 80 years or 90 years that we might live, still have only a fraction of the depth of the understanding of who God is. We will get the joy in eternity of studying him. I don't think we get to eternity and get all the answers instantly. I don't. I think we are going to spend all the rest of eternity discovering every waking day after really good night's sleeps, discovering new qualities, new attributes, new characteristics of God that causes us to worship him all the more. For some of us, we picture heaven and we think, man, that's going to be the most boring place ever. We're just going to praise God all day? Amen. Because every day we're going to discover something new about who he is. And that is eternity. Something new about the creator of the universe that we didn't know the day before. Can you be satisfied in God even if nothing else is okay in your life? Can you be satisfied in God even if he keeps you from sleep every night for the rest of your life? Can you be satisfied in God if you have no food and only have him? Are you aware of the depths of the riches of God? The next thing we see. Verse 7 through 8 is that David's help comes from God because the characteristic is God's help and his holding. Okay? David knows his help comes from God because God is his help and his hold. Here's what we see in verse 7 and 8. He says, For you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you and your right hand upholds me. Now the first thing we need to realize here is that most of us read this word help incorrectly. Most of us, when we read this word help, think of God as our assistant. We think of God as the one who is assisting us in life. As we do what we do, God kind of comes alongside us. He pushes us along. He lifts us up some of the time, right? If you're a man, he's the one handing you the screwdriver and the tool and this and that. Women, I don't know what God is doing for you, but he's doing something. When David says, God, you are my help, he is not saying, God, you are my great assistant. What he's saying is that, God, without you, I am dead. For some of us, what we need to see most in this passage through David's eyes is that God is the God without whom we would have nothing, not even the breath to wake up in the morning. David says, David says, for you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. Just 
a pause in that real quick a couple weeks ago. In, in, in Psalm 61, we, we looked at how the shadow of your wings is a reflection of David's worship inside the temple. In the shadow of the, the Holy of Holies where the cherubim were above the ark. David's still singing for joy here. As he says, God, you have been my help. Is it a joy to you that God is your, is your help? The one who without whom you would be and have nothing. Or do you try to find joy in what you are capable of without him? For a lot of us, we go through life doing what we do, marching forward in whatever way we think we're supposed to march forward, accomplishing what we're supposed to accomplish, and we do so on our own strength. We do so by our own will. We do so as we so desire. And then when things get hard, we say, God, come help me. That's not what David's talking about here. David knows that every time he has tried to go his own way, terrible things happen. David wants to go God's way. And so he says, you are my help. And then he says, verse 8, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Because he knows that, that, if, that if he would let go, there would be no hope. But he also knows that God is holding on to him. And, and, and he is the one who's actually holding on. Do we live our life in such a way? Do we do ministry in such a way? Do we do church in such a way that if God didn't show up, we would be lost? There's an old book that came out in the late 1960s about a missionary in Eastern Europe. Some of you may have heard of it. It's called The God Smuggler. Anybody familiar with that book? Got a couple nods. It's about a, a guy named Brother Andrew who smuggled Bibles into communist countries. It's actually about more than that, but that's, that's a big piece of it. During the Cold War, he smuggled Bibles into communist countries, places that it was illegal to own, carry, or give a Bible away. So what did Brother Andrew do? He stashed them away, right? And he crossed the border in secret, right? No, that's not what he did at all. In fact, what he did is fill his back seat with Bibles. And he drove to a border crossing. And they said, do you have any Bibles? And he said, yes, I have Bibles. And then they said, all right, go ahead, sir. And he drove across the border. He did it over and over and over again. He was living his life in, in faith in such a way that if God didn't show up, what was going to happen? Death or imprisonment. Church, do we live our faith in such a way that either death or imprisonment or other some terrible thing is going to happen to us? I look at life of David and I say, man, David is a guy for whom if he lived his life in a way that wasn't about God, terrible things happened. In fact, you see it over and over and over again. Every time David takes his eyes off God and says, I'm going to do things my own way, everything falls apart. But in those moments when David's kind of got it together and he just looks at God and says, God, we're going to do what you want to do, amazing things happen. When we think about God, do you think about God as your assistant? Or do you think about God as the one who will pull you through? Do we live our lives our energy, our financial lives, our faith lives in such a way that if God doesn't show up, we will be destitute and lost. 
The fifth thing we see here in verses 9 through 11 is that we need to trust God to fight our battles for us. Because why? The characteristic of God is that he's the one who fights our battles. I try not to make this too complicated. (laughs) Here's what we see in verses 9 through 11. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt. For the mouth of liars will be stopped. We get to the end here, and just you need to see that David expects God to work. He expects God is going to work. His prayer is one full of hope that God is going to do what God is going to do. Now, this is especially important if this is the time in his life when his son has come against him. Why? Because David can't kill his own son. He's dead set against it. I've been, been reading through First and Second Samuel and the Chronicles for my devotions the last few months. You get these stories all throughout that. And what happens in that moment is David literally commands all of his commanders, his entire army that's still loyal to him, that if they find his son Absalom, they're supposed to arrest him and not kill him. David can't do it. He will not kill his own son. Now, if you read through the story and you know, then one of his commanders takes it upon himself to kill him. David is furious, and he mourns for days and days. He mourns so much that finally one of his generals comes to him and says, David, we have all sacrificed for you. We could have died for you. We're still here. Men did die for you, and you're mourning them, mourning your son, and you're not even thankful that we were there on your side. See, this is a moment when when David can't lift a hand. David can't do anything about it. He won't do anything about it. And he says, God, I won't. You need to. And church, this is our posture. This should be our posture. When we've got fights to fight, battles to be won, that we would look at God and say, God, you, you need to do this because I can't. God, you need to do this. You need to fight for me. You need to be on my side here. You need to work. And church, we need to be a people that expects that God is going to work, that God is going to do what God's going to do. Now, he does this a couple ways. The first way is that God empowers his people to fight. It's the first way that we see God working in these moments. God empowers his people to fight. You look at David. He was a mighty warrior, and he had many mighty men who followed him and fought alongside of him. When you read about their deeds in Scripture in multiple places, what you quickly realize is that either the scriptures are exaggerating about what they were capable of, which I'll just tell you is not what I believe, or they were capable of superhuman things. David's mighty men would go into battle and defeat thousands on their own. If any one of us were to pick up a sword and and attempt to fight people, most of us, especially untrained, might be able to get through two or three before we were so exhausted that we would just pass out. A trained soldier still can't fight thousands on their own. They don't have the strength in their arm to swing a sword, the tens of thousands that would require. David would go into battle himself and would defeat thousands. Scripture tells us that. 
The first thing we see is that God has fought with his people, using them and their strength and their skills and their situations. You see it with David and Goliath, right? God takes the natural skills of this shepherd boy and defeats a giant with it. You see it in Samson, right? When Samson, well beyond the strength of a human being, does amazing things, including pulling an entire building down on all the Philistines and himself by the strength of God. You see it at Joshua and Jericho when the people of Israel just kind of march and they blow some horns and the walls fall. Right? Sometimes God empowers his people to do amazing and powerful things. The second thing that, that, that way, way we see this is that God sometimes just simply fights and wins battles for them. 2 Samuel 5, 22 and through 25, we read this. This is in the life of David as well. It says, And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. In that moment, God marches before the army and begins striking down the army before David and his men are even there. They just clean up after the fact. Do we expect that God is going to work in those kinds of ways in our lives now? Do we expect that he is going to fight our battles for us and with us the way David expected that God would. Would we cower in fear, run and hide, get angry, and lash out? Our answer to this is especially important because there is one battle. There is one battle that is common to every single one of us. That is the battle of life and death between sin and salvation, between light and darkness. And you and I might march out of the gates to try to fight that, but we will lose it on our own. But we are told in Scripture that Jesus has already won that battle. He has already fought the biggest fight that we ever face, and he came out of it victorious. We think about Jesus on the cross fighting a fight that we couldn't fight, dying a death that we should have died so that we can live. Right? Church, if he was willing to lay down his life to fight that fight, why would he not fight every other fight with us? I mean, why would he leave us alone as we fight with, with our, our society and our culture? Or as people attack us, or as we run into those problems in our own lives of depression and fear, anxiety and worry, do you think he's not going to fight those fights if he was willing to die on the cross for us to win the biggest fight ever? David looks at God and has every confidence that God is going to work, that God is going to fight his battles for him and with him. In church, we look to Jesus from David. Think about 
Jesus is that like David, but more so, he is the gold standard. Think about the faith of Jesus. You think about the the confidence of Jesus. You think about his own worship of the Father, which was the truest perfect worship coming out of the love, the Hesed love that the Father has for the Son. There's a lot of ways we can think about this. It's interesting. In, in Luke and in Matthew, we're told the stories about Jesus' um, going into the wilderness, in the temptations. You remember that story? What's really interesting to me in that story is that Jesus, like David, is in the wilderness of Judah. The same thing that Psalm 63 tells us where David is. There Jesus is, and he's doing what? He's hungering, and he's thirsting, he's in need. And the devil comes to him, and the devil tempts him three times. And, and each time, Jesus responds. Now, your homework for this week is to go home and read these stories. And if you took good notes today, then you're going to pay attention to each one of these ways in David, that David sees God, you're going to see these same qualities in Jesus. Church, when we think about Jesus, we know that he is the one who sees God the most clear. Why? Because he is God. He is the exact representation. In Colossians, it tells us that in Jesus, the fullness of God is there to dwell. The fullness of God, right? Jesus knows exactly who God, and so we look at Jesus to live out of his knowledge of God, the same way David can live out of his knowledge from God, the same way that we are meant to, to live out of the knowledge we have of God as best we can. But we know that we do so imperfectly. David knew that too, of course. The beautiful thing is that we have Jesus, we look at Jesus and we think, man, Jesus did this perfectly, right? Jesus knew that his deepest need on earth was God. Jesus was compelled to worship by God's love. Jesus was satisfied in God's glory and power. He rested and trusted in it. He knew that his only help was from God, and he knew that when he trusted, that he needed to trust God to fight for him and with him. The beautiful thing about Jesus perfectly living this out and perfectly living out um, his relationship out of knowing God perfectly is that if we, you and I, we, you and I, are in him, then he has already lived it out. What that means is that if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, you know what, Pastor Matt, everything you said today basically told me that I don't know God very well and that I need to live out of God way better, and you're sitting here really frustrated, the really good news is, is that he's already lived the life that we get the benefit of. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're thinking, I don't live my life out of my knowledge of God at all. In fact, I know a bunch of things about God, but my life doesn't reflect that at all. Maybe you're, you're sitting here thinking, you know what, I, I know a bunch about God, but I, I must not really know him. Well, today's the day to come before him in repentance and say, Lord, I I have fallen short of how you want us to live and how you want me to live. I have fallen short of your glory, of living in your power and your glory. And you think, man, my life is, is devoted to so many other things and not to the one thing that actually deserves to have life devoted to. 
Maybe today's the day that you need to respond and you need to lay down all those other things. And if that's you today, then right now is the time for that. There is no time better than right now because you don't know what 10, 15, 20, or 30 minutes from now look like. But we do know what God looks like because we've seen him in Jesus. And when you think about Jesus and then you ask the question, am I living a life worthy of who he is and worthy of what he's done for me and done for us? And if the answer is no, then there is only one choice right now, and that is to turn to him for salvation. And maybe you're already saved and and you're sitting here thinking, you know what? I need to fall in line with this. I need to come into this. Then, then today's a great opportunity for repentance. To say, Lord, I'm doing this, but I, I know because of who you are, I need to be doing this. And this is an opportunity today to come to him in prayer and, and know that. And bring that to him. Look, let him work out all the details afterwards. It's, what we need to do is, is come to him now. And trust that he is going to carry us forward. That he will enable us to live the life out of who he is through the Spirit in our lives. Some of us, man, we just need to lay it down now. You need to lay it down now. Come to him and trust in him. Would you pray with me right now? God, we know that we do not measure up. We know that you have revealed yourself, shown us who you are, and yet we struggle to live out of who you are. We sin and we fall short of what you want for us. So God, we thank you for giving us your son who lives the life we could not live, dies the death we should have died so that we don't have to. God, we pray that you would be our only help to live out of who you are in trust, in worship, and in how we live the rest of our lives, Lord. And we pray that you would work in us now. Amen. Church, we come now to the time of communion, and this is one of those moments where if you haven't already repented and already confessed, that you should be getting ready to do so. For us here at Calvary, we, we participate in the Lord's Supper every single week. It is meant to be a, a response to what we've heard in the sermon and out of the Word of God. And so we invite you to use this time well in confession, in repentance, in laying down weakness, and any other desperate need that we have, knowing that, that God is the only fill that we have. You are invited to this table if you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. And otherwise, we invite you to wait until the day that you make that choice to follow him into the salvation he's leading you in. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he lifted the bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. He took the cup and lifted it and blessed it and said, this is my blood, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. He offered them to his disciples to eat and to drink as we are offered, that we might remember who he is and what he has done, but not only that, who we are because of that. And so we take and we eat and we remember. If you need to talk to someone today about salvation, about what it means to follow Jesus, then come find me, Scott, 
back there or somebody else in this room that you know loves Jesus. And let us speak with you and talk with you about what it means to know and love and follow after Jesus. If you brought an offering today, you can place that in the blue buckets here. You can give, give joyfully and willingly and sacrificially. It's what we always talk about here. I also just want to say that in response to what we've been talking about today, in a few minutes we're just going to be worshiping again. And this is a great moment to begin putting into practice, being compelled to worship because of God's love. And so I just want to invite you into that time of worship in that way, together, singing joyfully and loudly and maybe with our whole bodies. I don't know. It's up to you. But church, I just invite you to come. Take a minute and prepare yourself. When you're ready, come and eat. Come and and remember. But do always take that minute. Take that moment to just ready your own heart before you come up, to lay sin down and to hear the words of forgiveness. And come and eat. Come and eat with us if you believe.
just to rest upon his promise, just to know the safe alone. Jesus, Jesus, how I've trust him, how I proved him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Oh, too sweet to trust in Jesus, just to trust his cleansing blood, as in simple faith to plunge me beneath the healing, cleansing flood. Ask Jesus how I trust him, how I proved him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Is sweet to trust in Jesus, this time sin and self to cease, just from Jesus simply taking life and rest and joy and peace. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I proved him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust him more. So glad I learned to trust thee, precious Jesus, Savior, friend. And I know that thou art with me, will be with me to the end. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust thee, how I proved him more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him.